Hello and welcome to the Driven by Diversity podcast. I'm Mariana. And I'm Steph. And every week we shine the spotlight on underrepresented groups in the world of racing. Our guests share their journey into the sport and also delve into what diversity and inclusion means to them. We hope that we can provide you with real role models who you can relate to and who represent you. And more than that, that you'll feel inspired and encouraged to know that you can make it in motorsport, no matter your background. Today's guest is a name that Formula One fans will no doubt be familiar with, having been one of only two Indian drivers to race in the world's most renowned single-seater series, but these days forms part of the Sky Sports F1 team. You might be surprised to learn that his career in broadcasting actually started over 15 years ago with Star Sports in Asia, and has since worked with five different broadcasters. A wealth of experience across a number of motorsport categories has seen him compete in WEC, Le Mans, GT and Formula E and even dabbles in historic racing. Keep listening to hear his take on diversity, his chat with Lewis Hamilton and the feeling in the F1 paddock surrounding the movement. Of course, it's Karun Chandok. So thank you for joining us. We've just rounded off another triple header with the Spanish Grand Prix. You must be pretty exhausted. How has the start of the 2020 season been? Uh, exhausting. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think six races in seven weeks, you know, is pretty hardcore. And now we've obviously got another three coming up. So mm-hmm. yeah, nine races in 11 weeks, pretty unprecedented for, for anybody. That's what we have to do. You know, I think, yeah. unfortunately, you know, we're living in unprecedented times, really. So we're all we're all going to suck it up and uh, you know do what we have to do to get the show back on the road. Yeah, I imagine it's good to be back though and in the buzz of everything. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I think we've uh, we, we've all missed F one. You know, having five six mm-hmm. months of quiet time between really since Abu Dhabi and the first race, we had seven months, I suppose. So yeah, I think I think everyone's been looking forward to seeing some racing back on track. I think lockdown has if anything, wet our appetite a bit more for, for how much fans around the world and people within the sport have missed F1. So it's been nice to get it back up and running on the road. Um, it's a little bit of a shame that once again, Lewis and Mercedes seem to be so far ahead of everybody else. I think we would have all hoped and liked for it to be a little bit closer. But yeah, even so, nice to be back. Definitely, definitely is. So taking things back a little bit, for those that might not know, you actually came from a motor racing background with some of your family members being involved in rallying, I believe it is. So for you, was there ever like a eureka moment where you realized you wanted to get into motorsport or was it something that just came naturally because of your upbringing? Uh, I think it's very much the latter. Uh, I grew up, uh, as you mentioned, in a house surrounded by cars and motorsport. My my dad and my granddad, even my grandmother used to race. So um, it was very much a family business, which in India, I suppose, is a big thing. And mm-hmm. uh, But, you know, it was never forced upon us. My my brother, for example, had no interest in motor racing. He didn't, didn't really care about it. So it was never forced upon us. It's just what I naturally was drawn to, um, naturally got interested in. And, and I think it, it's... You know, it, it's an amazing sport. You know, you have the opportunity to to really understand the world at large because there's nothing else on the planet that combines technology, you know, obviously the human element of the sport, i.e. the drivers competing physically. You're talking about engineering, you're talking about marketing, you're talking about the commercial complexities, you're talking about legal complexities. You know, there's nothing in the world that is a an all-encompassing business um, mm-hmm. in the way that, motorsport is 
And do you think then without your early sort of exposure to motorsport, would you have been attracted to motorsport anyway? Uh, uh, unlikely is the honest answer. I think, uh, you know, I grew, up, I grew up in India at a time where certainly Formula One wasn't doing on television. You know, we had the first race broadcast in 93. So, you know, that's a long way behind Western Europe, for example. So I think, uh, I think if I didn't have my family involved in the business, I, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't have gotten involved. I think it also helped. I grew up in Madras where we had India's first racetrack was in Madras down the road from me. So, you know, I spent most of my weekends and several weekdays as well at the racetrack with my dad. And so I think having that ability to access the sport certainly opened the doors for me. I think, you know, when, it's not a coincidence, is it? You know, when you have mm. 1.2 billion Indians, and you have two Formula One drivers. <laughs> there's, there's obviously yeah. some, some sort of limitation there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, you're a familiar face on the TV screens at the moment, but could you talk us through your racing career for now and how you built your way up into Formula One and everything else that that involved? Yeah, I mean, I'll try and sum it up because it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it feels like a very long journey now. But we had no go-karting in India when I was growing up, which was a huge disadvantage. Mm. I think when I look back in hindsight, you, you compare the kids from Europe who are out driving week in, week out and competing, not just driving, but competing. You know, I had a go-kart. I think I got it when I was six, but I wasn't racing against anyone else. So I never knew how good or bad I was. I was just driving around. And I think that makes a huge difference. So I started racing in India when I was 16 in the Indian Championship. I won that in the first year, went on to race across Asia, won that when I was 17, and then moved to the UK to race in Formula 3. So, and then it was just a hard grind of climbing the European ladder, you know, of doing Formula 3, GP2, and then um, eventually getting the door open to F1. So... Uh, it wasn't certainly an interesting decade between 2000 and, and 2010 when I managed to get into Formula One. It was a it was a tough decade with a um, you know a lot of lot of sleepless nights and mm-hmm. a lot of hurdles along the way. But you know it was nice to get there at the end. But I'm also you know very proud of the fact to be the first Indian to race at Le Mans, for mm-hmm. example. I think that's a it's a magical event which some people really underestimate how how special it is. You know, to have been there at the start of Formula E and being there at the first race of Formula E and, and seeing how that sort of has developed. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate in my career, shall we say my driving career, because I've, I've got two parallel careers going on, but my driving career has uh, has given me the opportunity to race in, you know, in GT cars, in sports cars, in Formula One, in various single-seaters. So I've been very fortunate and also lots of historic racing, you know, racing at Goodwood and, and working with Williams on on the heritage side means I've driven, you know, seven different world championship winning cars um, over history in Formula One. And it's been, yeah, it's been very cool. So you've obviously mentioned there um, various different series and different cars, different categories, but why did you choose single seaters initially? And what was it that attracted you to that, despite your family background of rallying? Well, the dream was always Formula One. You know, I, I always, you know, I think every kid on the planet who thinks of, being a racing driver dreams of Formula One, don't they? Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's the pinnacle of our sport. And that, that was always the, the dream for me. My dad used to race and rally, you know, when, when, he, when I initially was growing up, he was doing both at the same time. And then he stopped, stopped the racing and did more of the rallying uh, later on in his life. But I think I was always drawn to, to driving on the circuit. And how did you find the differences between Formula One and Formula E? It, it's a very different challenge. You know, I think... Formula E is is a very the, the emphasis on the mental challenge. Mm-hmm. I would say I, I'm not using my words correctly here, but I think 
the the mental challenge of driving a Formula E car is far outweighs the physical challenge. You know, the cars are significantly slower than Formula One. They obviously race on street circuits and, and small temporary circuits. If you went to a normal track, say, I don't know, let's say Barcelona, the Formula E car would be 30 seconds a lap slower than the Formula One car. Yeah. So the physical challenge is, is a, there's a gulf, right, between them. But that doesn't mean they're any less challenging because from a mental standpoint, they are. They're, they're very complex um, cars in terms of the energy management and in terms of how you get the energy to last the entire race because they've tried to cost, you know, control the costs and therefore there's much less information going back and forth between the team and the driver. So, you know, you're, you're having to mentally work out a lot of things much more. You know, there's a, there's a restriction on the number of people at the race tracks for a team. So there's a lot of restrictions they've put in place. I believe rightly for the cost standpoint. Yeah. Um, so that makes it a whole different challenge. But from the sheer driving pleasure of driving the fastest cars on the planet, you know, nothing will nothing will surpass what Formula One can offer you as a driver. Yeah, I, I can imagine. You mentioned there that obviously you've covered a lot of bases within the racing section of your career, but you've now stepped over into the presenting side. Could you tell us a bit how you made that move and what that transition was like? From a very young age, uh, I made a conscious decision that I need to have a plan B in my life because, you know, I'd, I'd never had a proper budget and a full budget to race in Formula 3 or GP2 or things. You know, we're always scrambling for sponsors and every winter there was a real risk that the money would run out and my driving career would have to come to an end. So I think quite early on, I was very conscious of the fact that I've got to have a backup plan in case, you know, you all of a sudden you get to your, and you see it with, hundreds if not thousands of drivers around the world you know they sort of get to their mid-20s and all of a sudden they haven't been in university they haven't got any degrees they haven't they're not really qualified to do anything else and all of a sudden they run out of budget or they haven't made the step to f1 and and then what are they going to do for the next 60 years of their lives um so i was quite conscious of the fact that you've got to have um some options in life on the whole uh, especially you know i think it, i think it would be different if you're if you were, you know, someone like Lewis who had Mercedes backing you all the way and you knew the budget was there to pick you up. I think if you were someone like a drivers like Nelson Piquet or, or you know, Junior, I should say, uh, you know, who knew there was a financial backing so he could be willing to take the risk. But mm -hmm. in my case, that wasn't the case. You know, I, I knew I had to earn a living out of the sport. So way back in 2004, I made contact with Star Sports, who were the broadcasters across Asia, and I was 20 years old at the time and I commentated at the Chinese Grand Prix for them. Oh, wow. And uh, that was my first foray into F1 commentating. Uh, and then over a period between 2004 and probably 2012, I worked with BBC Five Live, Radio Five Live. I worked with Star Sports in Asia a lot. Uh, I did F1 in cinemas. You know, they were broadcasting it across cinemas across the UK. So I, I did the commentary with Ben Edwards for that and, and also worked with FOM doing, you know, support series, GP2 and things like that. So I, I built up a, a good baseline of experience mm -hmm. um, doing, doing commentating basically on, and, and broadcasting in F1, which, and, and off the back of that, I started doing various things like documentaries for National Geographic in India. And I used, I started doing fifth gear and I did um, Clarkson DVD, Jeremy Clarkson's DVD called Powered Up. And, you know, so various, various other TV projects started coming my way. But I had to sort of weave it in between my, my driving. But it, it helped me build up profile. It helped me build up um, experience as well. So should the, 
the driving career started to wind down, I had the next stage of my life ready to go. So you say there, obviously, you you knew that you needed to have a plan B, but was it always commentating or presenting that side of the business that you knew you wanted to go into? Or did you sort of fall into that when you found yourself commentating with with Star Sports on the Chinese Grand Prix? Uh, I think it it was always on my radar um, that I wanted to do that because I felt one one of my strengths is I I have a huge love for the sport. I love, you know, you see the books behind me. Um, but you know, I, I, I love reading about the sport. I love watching about the sport. I love learning about the sport. I, I love spending time with engineers and team bosses and people like that just learning about the sport from their personal experiences. And I felt I could use all of that knowledge to contribute it back to people watching or listening at home. So I, I guess, yeah, the, I'm answering your question in a roundabout way, but I guess the short answer is yes. I think <laughs> that was my, my next step. Although, you know, I've also look to go down the path of running young driver programs and managing teams. You know, I, I enjoyed, I managed some young drivers. I worked at, you know, Silverson Race School teaching over there as a coach. And uh, I worked with teams as a driver coach, um, you know, various different teams across junior formula. And I do enjoy that. I do enjoy spending the weekend and mm. trying to help young drivers and spending hours looking at data with the engineers and trying to help them along and understand what they're, uh, weaknesses are to try and improve it so I, you know I, I do enjoy that side of it as well brilliant so it's it's clear that you really do have a wealth of experience throughout the industry as a whole but are there any lessons that you've learned from your experience that you would be able to give as advice for any listeners or anyone in the industry something that you've really learned from that you want other people to know uh, never assume assumption <laughs> is the mother of all screw-ups <laughs> you know every time you assume you you've got a particular job or you've got a particular deal or you got a or a, you assume that you know just because you've done something other elements are automatically going to fall into place it's mm-hmm. not going to happen you know you have to take ownership of it you have to uh, you, you have to be in the driving seat and and really not assume that straight away people are going to recognize you for your abilities or your talent and just automatically things will happen and fall into place for you. So you've really got to work for work for those opportunities and, um, you know, not to, as you say, assume that they're just going to come to you just because you've got one opportunity here that you're going to get the next one. Yeah, you have to recognize, right? You know, there are, I, I'm, you know, I think there are thousands of racing drivers who are talented enough to have made it to Formula One. But thousands of them haven't mm-hmm. yeah. um, and, and you have to you have to recognize that it's not just about what you can do behind the wheel of a car um, similarly you know if you're in, looking to go down the broadcasting route or you're looking to go down a, a marketing and commercial route just because you think you have the the best sponsorship package that you might be able to offer as a team to a sponsor it doesn't mean they're going to come to you yeah the number of times I verbally agreed a deal with people, whether it's a team or a sponsor. And well, there've been occasions where it's even been signed in a contract and yet it's not fulfilled is mm. you can't even count the number of times it's happened. And, and it happens on a weekly basis, unfortunately, in our sport. And that's just the nature of the beast, you know? Yeah. I think, uh, and that's why I'm saying it's, it's not just purely about the driving side, it's, it's across the board. Yeah, I think COVID is actually a prime example of that, Absolutely. living in the now, because obviously you, you probably had contracts signed to, you know, be out in Australia and then Bahrain and China and all that. So but obviously that didn't happen. Yeah, I think in, in I mean, that's a much bigger 
it's a much bigger topic that's really affected the whole planet. Yeah. If, if, if we consider it, you know, a big picture, there's n I can't think of anything since World War II, which is obviously before any of our lifetimes, but there's nothing since, I can't think of anything since World War II that's affected every country on the planet in the way that this has. You know, you had things like 9-11, which affected certain pockets of the planet. Mm -hmm. You had, you know issues in the Middle East, you had issues, um, even if you look at medical issues, things like Ebola and SARS mm. and stuff, they, they, yeah. the pockets of the planet. I can't think of anything that's, that's affected every single country in some way, shape or form this time. Mm. Yeah, it's absolutely mind-blowing and it's scary, but at least we seem to be coming out the other end, hopefully. But going back to what you said about some of the incorrect assumptions that you might make actually within the Formula One world, what would be your advice for how you pick yourself back up and bounce back from them setbacks because by the sounds of it they can happen quite often um so how do you keep yourself motivated and what would you advise those new to the industry do it's not easy um i wish there was a a, a short answer i could give you to that to be honest uh, i think ultimately you know I, I i won't pretend like it's easy to just dust yourself off pick yourself up and listen to some motivational words and get up and go it's not yeah. you know you, you do you have to feel the pain you know, you, you will, you have to feel the pain because that shows you care. You have to go through that pain. You have to, you have to go through that mourning period of losing a deal. You go through all the same emotions. You know, you go through first the anger of why it happened. Then you go through the sadness and frustration of losing of it. Then you get to the phase of dusting yourself off and going, okay, it's happened. Mm -hmm. Now what? Move on. Look for the next thing. So I think, I think it's, you know, there's no, there's no magic bullet in this life. I think you, you have to try and rationalize it. You have to try and work at it without being too emotional about it. I think that that is probably the one thing I will say is you, you've got it. And it's not easy to do, right? Because we're humans. You know, if we didn't have emotions, we'd be robots and the world would be a very boring place. So I think the fact that all of us process disappointment in different ways, first of all, means that whatever works for me, isn't going to work for the two of you, let alone the rest of the planet. Mm. I think it's, it's about just finding, finding the best way for you to, to pick yourself up from this moment, really. Yeah. And that's, that's really true. It's going to hit everyone slightly differently, I guess. And you have to learn how to cope with that individually, but moving on from some of the more low points, I suppose that you can experience in the career. What are, what are some of your most memorable points and your highlights of your time in Formula One across both racing and presenting? Well, I mean, I suppose for, for my time, just in F1, if you talk about, I think the first, the first test I have with Red Bull, you know, you dream your entire life of trying of what a Formula One car will feel like, you know, that, that, that just that first lap, that first experience of coming out the pit lane and, and driving a Formula One car, you can't ever forget that. that, that is, that's the culmination of a dream um, for any kid on the planet. I suppose the next one would be being on the grid uh, in 2010. I think that, you know, it was a very special moment. And I remember on the Thursday of the first race in Bahrain, is obviously my first weekend walking into the paddock as a Formula One driver. We all had to go to the pit lane. I think for, they had a, a photo shoot or something, like a pre-season photo call with all the drivers. And as we were walking along, the first driver who I met that day was Michael Schumacher. And he was, you know, Michael was at the poster on the wall. He was my hero as a kid growing up. And he came and shook hands and with me and said, you know, welcome to F1, good luck for the season. And he just, and he stood there just chatting with me for, 
five, ten minutes and just wanted to get to know a little bit about me, where I come from, you know, and, and it, it meant a lot. You know, this was the guy, if you remember that race in Bahrain 2010, it was his comeback mm-hmm. as well, you yeah. know, after three years mm-hmm. out of the sport. This, he, he was the biggest star on the planet in, 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 our, in our world, shall I say, yeah. in the racing world. You know, the, the biggest star at that time, a seven-time world champion, making his big return with Mercedes, you know, all the cameras and all the world watching mm-hmm. him. And yet he took the time, time out to, to, to speak to me, who, you know, I was a nobody. <laughs> and I, that, that meant a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, just being on the grid in 2010, you know, again, a, a culmination of another dream, the fact that you can then call yourself a Formula One driver and nobody can take that away from you. Uh, I think that's obviously a big, you know, for me, it, it's something that I will take for the rest of my life. So yeah, it was very important. That. Um, and I think it, in terms of TV world, it's hard to pick one, to be honest. I've, you know, as I said before, I work with five different broadcasters. I've, I've been lucky to commentate on some amazing races. Brazil, 2008, when Lewis won the championship mm-hmm. right at the end. You know, and working with, working with some... Great people, actually, is probably the highlight. A lot of whom, again, I grew up watching on television because ultimately, you know, we were fans of the sport. You know, I grew up watching Damon and Martin and uh, DC and Mark Webber, people like that. You know, they, they were all the guys who seemed, especially when you grew up in India, they seemed so far away. You know, they seem on, on another planet. You just you yeah. never believe that you're ever going to meet them, let alone become friends with mm-hmm. them and colleagues with them. Um, so I think, I, I, I think that's been, been very special from the, from the TV side. Yeah, definitely sounds like a brilliant world that, that you're part of and sort of all your dreams have, have come true, I guess. You know, you, you, you did the plan A, Formula One, and now you've got the plan B in broadcasting as well. Well, no, I mean, I think, I, I think look, I'm, I'm, I can sit here and look at it rose into glasses, but I think the reality is um, you, you, you need to look at the upsides and you need to look at the positives and you need to look, keep going, you know, if, if I want to look at look at it on the negative side, I go, well, I never had the chance to drive for a proper team in the midfield or at the front, never had the opportunity to drive a race-winning car and, and see, was mm-hmm. I capable of racing alongside the best in the world and winning races in Formula 1? But I, I choose not to sit and dwell on that because yeah. you can then spend a lot of time being being bitter about it. I, and I think we all we all have our path as well. And, you know, you're, you're now in broadcasting and have a wealth of experience behind you to support that as well. But have you got any particular advice for those wanting to get into the broadcasting or commentary presenting side of, of the sport? And alongside of that, what is the one, number one thing that you wish you knew before you entered this side of the business? I think the, the, the one advice I give is just keep knocking on those doors. You know, you never know when opportunities will unfold. You never know who's listening, who's watching. You know, for a start, you might be writing or, or doing videos or podcasts for a relatively small, unknown website, but there'll be someone at a bigger website or a bigger channel who will somehow come across it on, on you know, the internet has made the world such a small place now. And I think certainly if you're going down that path, that is the one thing you can do is just keep putting yourself out there. It's tough because like anything in the media world, I think rejection is a big part of it. You know, you think of actresses or actors who are going out there and auditioning day after day after day after day and not getting parts. Rejection is a big part of it, unfortunately. But I, I think you have, to, you have to keep putting yourself out there and you have to equally build up that knowledge base because 
people will only take you seriously if you've got a, a degree of knowledge behind you. You know, it's all well and good to have the the personality, the looks, the charisma, the the voice, you know, you, you can have all of those things, but if you don't actually know the subject, then people aren't going to take you as seriously. So I think that's, you know, knowledge is gold dust. Um, so what was your other question? The one thing you wish you knew before. Oh, right. Yeah. One th- um, God, that's a hard one. <laughs> I think, I think you, you just, you're just learning every day. Um, I think maybe the one thing perhaps is just having the ability to to reach a wide audience in terms of knowledge. It, it, it's very complicated. You know, if you look at your audience of people of Formula One, you know, you have the whole range, right? You have the people who are watching mm-hmm. every free practice session for 22 weekends a year. You have the other range where you've got people who tune in for the British Grand Prix, Monaco, and maybe the season finale. And you've got everything in between. Um, so how do, you, how do you make sure that what you're saying isn't too complex or technical for the casual viewer who dips in and out, yet you haven't dumbed it down for the person who's watching it week in, week out and already knows what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that massive trade-off between you know, taking the viewer for granted versus uh, you know, giving them the knowledge that, that they are craving. That's a huge balancing act to be doing. Yeah, I imagine that takes quite a lot of practice as well. And you adjust to it depending on what coverage you're on. Like, as you've said in Natalie's podcast as well, it depends, you know, whether you're on Channel 4, whether you're in the sky, because you draw in a different audience. Absolutely. So over the years, you've obviously seen Formula One evolve quite a bit. And at the moment, we're seeing quite quite a loud call for some change in the sport in terms of the diversity Mm. front. What do you feel like Sky and other organizations who are responsible for the coverage can do to help push diversity? I think it's it's not a it's not right to just single out broadcasters. Um, I think it needs to be the sport on the whole, right? We and and it, in the same vein that you know people people can say that broadcasters need to be doing X Y Z to make it better. Ultimately, we can only show what the racing is. The you know the the product has to be better if you want the sh- if you want the show to be better, right? So mm-hmm. uh, in the same way, I think the sport on the whole, uh, and that I'm not I'm not, you know I'm not discounting broadcasting from it. I'm including it. I'm saying, but it needs to be teams. It needs to be the me- written media, the television media. It needs to be the promoters. It needs to be the the world at large. The needs whole to ecosystem. Just, yeah. yeah, and it it comes. Listen, it comes on multiple levels. This is not a an issue which we're going to solve in two weeks. You know, I, I was absolutely dumbfounded by the number of people who watched the coverage of the first Grand Prix in Austria. Um, and obviously there's quite a strong message coming out and you know, certain drives take the knee, et cetera, et cetera. And then the number of people I had tweeting or messaging two, three weeks later saying, well, what's happened? You people have been saying the same thing about you want all this inclusion and diversity and nothing's happened. It's like, sorry, it's not going to happen in three weeks. This is gen- yeah. just as generational. Not if it's genuine as well. Exactly. You, you can't make this a knee-jerk reaction, right? It needs to be a carefully considered, thought-out plan because, first of all, listen, don't get me wrong. I, I, I am obviously all for wanting more diverse and yeah. a, a much wider range of people, not just in terms of race, but in, in gender and sexuality. I think socioeconomic 
background is a very, very important point that's often overlooked because people think of diversity as often just gender and race. Um, yeah, the more physical attributes. More physical attributes, perhaps sexuality, but the actual socioeconomic side is also very important. You know, it, it affects actually all of this stuff as well. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm 100% obviously for it, but I'm, I'm not for a knee-jerk reaction. I think we need to be, it needs to be done across the board in terms of, you know, how people are being recruited into the sport, how, and also it should, I'm not, I don't think it should just be a token system, right? They shouldn't just Definitely go out there not. and be hiring 10 people who are from the BAME community just because of the color of their skin. It has to be meritocratic because otherwise, unfortunately, those 10 people will always be thought of by their peers as, hey, you're only being hired because of that, which is wrong. It does more harm. It does more harm. Um, in the same way that, you, you know, I, I think the day we find a, a female driver with the ability of Lewis Hamilton, she will be the biggest star on the planet. But there's no point going out there to just sponsor a bunch of drivers who are going to just take part in GP2, GP3 and not be at the front because actually that does more harm to, to the girls who are coming along later down the line, right? You know, you, you, you want them to be there because they're good and because they're capable. And, um, so I think all of this comes back to the point of we need to hit it at the kids level. You need to be hitting it at the level under the age of 10, 12, you know, you need, you need, that generation to so the ones who are not interested and not particularly keen on getting involved in sport try and find out why you know is it yeah. because they grew up in an area where they're told no 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 this is not a sport which is for you for whatever reason and try and understand that and try and change that at that level this is not even a five-year game this is a mm. this is a 20-year game that we're playing here yeah, but do you think there are any more short-term things that can be done to not necessarily even make massive, massive impact and, you know, turn the sport around in terms of diversity, but just to show that real actions are being taken across the board, like you said, teams, Formula One, coverage, all aspects, like what things can people do to show that they are taking it seriously to back up the words? I think that the, I suppose the first thing would be in terms of targeted recruitment, um, and targeted education yeah. programs. You, you target certain areas geographically. Uh, I think, again, it comes back to educating that. And when you talk about what they can do in the short term, it, I'm not going to see this ratio of, I think, whatever it is, a stat is 80, 90% white. I think it's 88%, 90% white. Somebody also read a stat somewhere in the paddock in F1. Mm-hmm. You're not going to change that overnight. No, of course not. You know, and, and, and you shouldn't either. But what you could do is have those 10 teams all create some sort of scholarship program, yeah. some sort of um, educational programs uh, together with the promoters of the sport. You know, I'm impressed with the fact that FOM, you know, I've had various conversations with them about it and they seem to have a game plan and a good long-term plan. Chase is led from the front by mm-hmm. putting his money where his mouth is, you know, which I think is very, very impressive and commendable. Um, and I think that's what we can see happening yeah. is people putting together programs for the long term. And I suppose from a recruitment side, yes, you can probably see those differences coming in in the next three to five years. But you have to be careful, right? You can't, you have to be careful not to create a a feeling of insecurity amongst 
that 88 or 90 percent of the incumbent people in their jobs where if you're a white male you're just looking over your shoulder and feeling insecure that somebody's going to come and take your job because because you're part of the majority because you're part, currently part of the majority right so you have to mm. you, you have to respect the fact that those people have earned their stripes and earned uh, you know the positions in the sport whether it's in teams or in broadcasting whatever um, but you have to find this balancing act which is going to happen over time it's we can't just turn the turn over in a heartbeat yeah for sure. You mentioned their um, sort of feelings of insecurity mm. and being an insider in the Formula One paddock. Have you in in your experience felt that like there's been a sense of uncomfortableness or feelings of insecurity when the sort of We Races One campaign came about and the end racism message was brought about? Um, because obviously on social media, you see a lot of fans commenting saying, oh, but Formula One's not racist. But I don't think that's what we're trying to say, I think, perhaps there's a misunderstanding between the notions of racism, diversity, unconscious bias. Did you find that there was any sort of um, feelings of insecurity, as you mentioned? I, I don't know. I think there was, um, I think there was a feeling across the board of generally a lack of understanding um, and a, a lack of just perhaps a comprehension of of. Uh, the smaller mm-hmm. things, right? Like the the smaller microaggressions, the smaller unconscious biases. I think yeah. there was a lack of understanding of that, I would say. I think that, and that's, uh, and until these things were pointed out to people, and, and in complete fairness to, you know, various friends of mine in the paddock, and, and I'm, I'm saying across the paddock, who I had these open conversations with, they were very receptive to mm-hmm. it. And they actually said, oh, wait, hang on, we didn't actually think of it which is the point, you know? And I think we, you know, we have to be careful here. We have to, if you stand there and start ranting away at people for being, for being unaware or, or not thinking of the subject, then immediately they're going to shut down. They're going to put their guard up and immediately go, I'm not racist. Yeah. I have a brown friend somewhere and therefore that makes me not yeah. racist. That's, that doesn't work like that. Um, but we've all heard it, right? That's the defense mechanism that yeah. kicks in for people. Where yeah. they quote you some story of how they have a friend somewhere and therefore they're that's not the case. But that's not the point. You know, I think, you know, we we've all we, we've all got certain biases yeah. built into our heads. Mm-hmm. We, we all do. It's society. It's society. Yeah. And, and it and it's just about this whole and, and don't get me wrong, listen, I was no expert on the topic. I was as I would say as closed off in terms of the conversations, you know, in the sense we just never really talked about it uh, as, as a lot of the other people in this sport. But the, the, I think the lockdown period coinciding with the movement from obviously after mm. the George Floyd tragedy gave us all time to be a bit more introspective mm-hmm. and to think about things that have happened in our lives, things that have been said to us, things that are being said to us on a daily basis, things that are, are happening on a daily basis in our lives. And you sort of go, actually, hang on a second. This mm, things that I just took for granted as it is what it is, and that's how it's going to be. Uh, why does it need to be like that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe it does need to be a bit different. And I think I think that's 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 what we need to start with. Is just getting people to spend a little bit of time just thinking about not taking the current scenario for granted. Yeah. Um, and just thinking about, okay, hang on. Um, things could be a bit different for other people. Yeah. 
And it's important to highlight there as well that, like you said, a lot of people weren't aware or aren't aware of some of the microaggressions and some of the more subtle things that happen. And a lot of the time that's because they're not on the receiving end of it or they might not even be aware that they might be unintentionally doing that. And that's not necessarily something to, you know, berate them about. You just have to have the conversation, like you said. And most time people will probably be quite horrified as well that they think that maybe that they've played some part in that. And that's fine. Everyone's on a journey. Like you said, even yourself, even myself, Steph, we're all on a journey. We all still have learning to do. No one's had the same experience as everyone else. Absolutely. You know, at the end of the day, you know, Lewis has obviously talked a lot about his personal experiences um, via social media and things like that. He's posted on his, his, and what he's experienced is totally different to what I've experienced. Exactly. Because I didn't grow up as a black kid going karting in the UK in the 90s. Um, so I don't know what his experience is like, only he does. Um, but I think we've, we've all got a, a story to tell. Uh, and it's about getting people to just be a little bit more open-minded to listening to those stories and just being a little, little bit more conscious about when they make a comment or make a judgment. Uh, I think that's, that's the starting point. Absolutely. And going back to you mentioning Lewis being quite vocal at the moment, in response to mm. that, we've all seen some of the fan base reacting with the just stick to racing, don't get political, don't mix the two, they're yeah. separate things. What's your response to those sorts of comments and that that message? So I don't know if you um, saw it, but at the uh, at the race to service, and I, I sat down with Lewis for, yeah, for, we did, yeah. for about 20 minutes. I mean, we were originally meant to sit down for seven or eight minutes, but he... You know, we sat there just chatting for over 20 minutes. It was uh, a really good chat as well. Oh, it had you. a nice personal touch, which thank was you. which was good. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we spent um, a long time talking about the subject. And I was gobsmacked, if I'm honest, on the number of negative comments, like you said, that came afterwards. Absolutely gobsmacked. Not against me or against the interview, but very much in the vein of what you just said, where they go, uh, Lewis should just stick to racing and stop, yeah. you know, stop talking about the other. Uh, I, was, I was blown away by it um, and not in a good way. And, uh, you know, I, yeah. I, I said to him in, in Barcelona as well, I said, look, there were a lot of, a lot of positive comments. And a lot of people said like you guys did that they enjoyed listening to our conversation about it. But I said to him, I was, I was amazed at how many people um, don't take it the right way. And he's obviously had to deal with that um uh, all through the season you know on a weekly basis which is um it's tough Mm. it's tough for him it must be tough for him i guess you know however thick skin you are it must be tough dealing with that sort of stuff so definitely uh, i think i think the reality is and maybe i'm i'm different because i came from india where i think in society on the whole you're, you're made to think you're you're made to think a little bit more about people less privileged than you because you're seeing it right in front of you. You're, you're made yeah. to think about doing something for uh, society and charity and, and kids, underprivileged children, underprivileged families on a daily basis because it is right there in your face. And you feel yourself, you grow up with that feeling of wanting to do something for them. So, you know, I, I always, uh, and, and, you know, I got to thank my mom, I guess, for, for this a lot more than anyone else is that, you know, she always said to us or said to me that, you know, being a racing driver shouldn't just be about driving around around the circles. You you got to use whatever status you get to do some good to society, in society, in the world. You know, so we started a charity to educate kids in India back in 2005 when I was racing in Formula 3 and carries on till now. We run a 
you know, various fundraisers and, and that's, that's our cause. That's what we, we believe is needed out in, in India. And Lewis similarly is, believes that this is a cause that he wants to back. And this is a cause that he feels passionately about. And I think it's great. I think it's really, really good and important. And we've seen other drivers do it. You know, people like Juan Pablo Montoya have a, a huge charity that he runs out in Colombia. Um, you know, Michael did a lot of work through yeah. the UN. I think it's really important for for any racing drivers, sports people in general, celebrity people in general, to use their status to to contribute back to society. And I think you can't just live in this box of saying driving around around the planet, driving around on a racetrack is enough. Mm-hmm. That's I think it's I think it's good to think of the world at large. Mm, great words from from your mom and great advice there because I think that's definitely true and I don't know about you Ariana but I think even as a sports star you're not an object you are still a person you have thoughts and feelings and emotions and causes you want to support so I think you as you say Karine you've got a platform and you've got a voice so why would you not use it um I think because there are certain people who who are perhaps shy of conflict um, I think there's certain people who perhaps don't have the self-confidence to take the criticism and the negative feedback on social media. It's tough. You know, as I said, you know, for someone like Lewis, it must be tough. Mm. But you've got to have enough conviction in what you're doing and you've got to have enough self-confidence in what you're doing. But not everyone can be like that, right? So, you know, I, I, think, it, I think it's wrong to single out other people, you know, they, for their reasons for doing or not doing things. Um, you just got to understand what, where they're coming from, but you've also got to give them your perspective and then let them make their decisions. You can't force, you can't force them to do anything. You can't mm-hmm. force other people to do anything. All you can do is put across your reasons for why you're doing something, why you think maybe they mm-hmm. can also help to do the same thing, but that's it, you know? Yeah, definitely agree with that. Um, I think what I meant more was in terms of you know, people that comment and say stick to yeah. racing, don't get politics involved. I, I I personally don't agree with that for, for the reasons that we've just discussed. But let's move on. On a recent Sky Sports F1 feature, you talked about equitable opportunities yep. and not just equal opportunities. Now, I think that's quite an important notion to understand. So can you just talk us through what you meant by that? It actually came off the back of a post I saw on Instagram. Um, which my wife showed me actually, which is, it, it's quite hard to do without actually ha- having a visual. I think I know which one you, you're talking about though. It's uh, the apple tree. Did you see? The, it's one of the apple tree in the yeah. <laughs> I have seen that one. Yeah. But, but uh, well, there you go, Ariana. You can tell people how to find yeah, it on I'll, Instagram. We'll have to try and because, dig it out. Won't we? <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, can't, I, I genuinely can't do it, do it justice in the way that it's succinctly summed up. But essentially what I'm trying to say is that Creating equal opportunity doesn't factor in the different circumstances that that individual's facing, right? So, you know, if you go to a racetrack and have two, I don't know, two identical Formula 4 cars there and say, here you go, you have two drivers, off you go, there's an equal opportunity for you to have a driver shootout. Mm -hmm. That doesn't factor in that the... um, Let's say one of the kids comes from an under... Irrespective of color, irrespective of gender... I'm going to say one of the kids comes from a, a lower socioeconomic background where they've done one or two go-kart days of driving at their local indoor car track. And the other one has come from a wealthier background that has done 
200 days of karting at a professional level. And therefore, when they arrive for their first, do- first opportunity in a Formula 4 car, it's not actually an equal opportunity. Mm-hmm. Although on the, the perception from that people on that day is that they create an equal opportunity for them to have a shootout. Um, I guess that's... Ariana, you tell me. Does that make yes, sense? Yes, that I, makes have sense. Have I tried to explain it with my analogy? Yes, that makes sense. It's that concept of what you actually just present to them for them to then make use of doesn't take into consideration any of the challenges that they might have had up to that point and some of the factors that you exactly. need to consider. It's not a case of just, here's the keys, go for a drive. You know, there's all the background of them. Exactly that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, I think that's, that's really um, what I think people in the sport need to think about a little bit more. Good takeaways from Karun there and important advice about never assuming within this industry and how important it is to be realistic with yourself. And I think that that shone the light on some of the more negative sides within this industry that you can face. But it's important that we're honest about that and that you get an insight into the lows as well as the highs because that is the reality. Yeah, I think feeding into that was when he was talking about planning for the future, particularly if you are a racer, because as Karun said, There are hundreds, if not thousands of racers that set their sights on Formula One, but never actually make it to the big time. So it is really important to consciously have a backup plan or not even a backup plan. Even if you do make it to Formula One, obviously your career is only so, so long. So much like David Coulthard and Jensen Button, Mark Webber, those kind of guys, much like they have done, have a a plan of what you are going to go on to do next. Yeah, of course. And moving on to the second part of the conversation about diversity, it was clear that Karun is in support of long-lasting change as opposed to a knee-jerk reaction, which I definitely agree with. It's something that needs to be well thought out and that will have a lasting impact. We all have a part to play in this. No one is suggesting that broadcasters alone are responsible for this change, but each group does have some responsibility and can play their part in promoting diversity. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think people need to be promoting diversity and improving representation irrespective of what the wider body is doing or not doing. So yes, we do all have a responsibility collectively, but also individually, and we need to make sure that we are aware of that. Um, For example, there are small short-term steps that can be made. Yes, this is a long-term game, but there are smaller actions that that can be made to to show that you're serious about it for example with formula e we've seen very recently they have launched an open talent call in conjunction with racing pride who are promoting that within their community and with that formula e's aim is to is to make their presenting team much more diverse perhaps small actions like this is something that formula one need to look into and hopefully they are already looking into and it's also great to know from what Karun told us that people within the paddock are actually having these conversations and they they are open to learning more and and discussing this topic yeah these conversations need to be had especially as you know if you've never experienced any barriers or negative situations surrounding diversity yourself then you won't necessarily know the issues that exist and we're all learning and it's only by talking and by hearing from other people that you will gain a deeper understanding. As for the equality versus equity illustration that we discussed during this episode, we'll put the link in the podcast description for you to have a look at. If you would like to follow Karun on Twitter and Instagram, you can do so at Karun Chandok and also keep up to date with Driven by Diversity on Instagram at We Are Driven by Diversity. 
That is all from us. Thank you for joining us for another episode. We will see you next time. 